Isaiah 19. Um, imagine being in a small nation, surrounded you are by two great superpowers, giant countries, Assyria on one side and Egypt on the other, both thinking you might be their next meal that they want to gobble up. That's Judah. That, that's who Isaiah is writing to, the southern tribe of Israel. Now, we just finished the first section of Isaiah's prophecy, chapters 1 to 12, which starts with Judah and ends with the Messiah taking the gospel to the nations. Now, the second section, chapter 13 to around 23, is just the reverse. It starts with the nations and it ends with Judah, yet the message is absolutely the same. Salvation is found in the Lord and His coming Messiah. So if you would read with me Isaiah chapter 19. I'm starting at verse 16, and I'll read to the end. In that day the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand that the Lord of hosts shakes over them. And the land of Judah will become a terror to the Egyptians. Everyone to whom it is mentioned will fear because of the purpose that the Lord of hosts has purposed against them. In that day there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar to the Lord at its borders. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of oppressors, he will send them a savior and a defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in the day, in that day, and worship with sacrifice and offering. And they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. And the Lord will strike Egypt striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord, and he will listen to their pleas for mercy and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will become, come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria, and the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day, Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. Let's just pray once more, please. Father, I know that we have already thought about a lot this morning. We've read a lot of Scripture. But God, give us eyes to see and ears to hear this morning. Let your Holy Spirit work in our midst to draw us to Christ, O Father. We want to see and know our Savior. And I thank you for this prophetic vision of what Jesus would do, not just in Dothan, Alabama, but around the world, which gives us incredible hope, Father, that, God, if you would save a nation like Egypt, God, you can save anyone. And so, Lord, we thank you for just your sovereign work. And you tell us you turn from judgment to mercy. God, be honored and be glorified during this time. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to tell you a story of a man by the name of Hanias IV. He was the 
son of Hanias III and the heir to be the next Jewish high priest in about 155 B.C., so about 150 years or so before Jesus was born. But in his hopes to take that position of the high priest, they were dashed when the Jewish leader Judas Maccabeus chose someone else. And so Hanias did something very unexpected. He went to Egypt, and he went to the Egyptian leader, the king, Ptolemy VI, Cleopatra's son, and he pleaded his case there. Now, he didn't ask Egypt to come and invade Judah. He didn't ask that they give him any kind of assistance. He asked that they would enable him to build a Jewish temple in Egypt, which he did, the temple of Hanias. Now, why would he do that? That seems like an absolutely insane thing to do, to go to your neighbor, Egypt, who was controlled by Rome, and say, I've been pushed out, now can I build a temple in your country? And the reason he did that was because of what Isaiah 19 says about Egypt. See, Isaiah 19 is about the striking on one hand and the healing on the other of Egypt. And we see an amazing promise here of gospel grace going to Egypt. That God's salvation and the work of the Messiah would come to Egypt, and it closes with a prophetic picture of the future by saying this, Blessed be Egypt, my people, and Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. So Egypt has gone from being one of the great enemies of God in Old Testament Scripture to being God's people themselves. From worshiping idols to knowing the living God and being saved. How does that happen? Well, verse 20, God says He will send a Savior to deliver them and God will make Himself known to them. Now, Hanias knew all this. He knew the Scriptures. And so he went to the king of Egypt and he showed him Isaiah 19, explaining that he believed Syria was going to tear down the temple there in Judah. And when that happened, that the Jews would flow into Egypt with the new temple as promised in Isaiah 19. Now, Hanias, you've got to give him an A for an effort, but an F for theology because he had things pretty muddled up. Now, it is absolutely astounding that Isaiah, the prophet, puts Egypt and Assyria on the same par of faith with God's people, Israel. But my friends, this is the work of the Messiah. That's what he's saying What he's already told us in chapter 2, that the nations will come, and now he's telling us more about that act. Now what that means is the grace of God comes to the worst of people. You have to remember, Egypt had been the source of suffering for Israel, hadn't they? They had enslaved them for 400 years, and God had poured out absolute destruction upon these people before. But not just that. Egypt was much more than just a bully. 
They were absolute idolaters, worshiping creation in men themselves. The Roman poets of the day used to make fun of the Egyptians by saying this. They worship the gods that they grow in their gardens. <laughs> that was the Roman joke of the day. Oh yeah, the Egyptians, they worship the gods that they grow in their gardens. That's quite bright. Yet, they are not unredeemable. They are not past being on the same ground of faith that we are, an equal standing as righteous before the Lord, equally loved and forgiven. What we take from that is nobody is beyond the reach of God's sovereign, saving, transforming grace. And when you hear that, you say, yes, Rusty, but you don't know my father. I've been praying for him for 35 years, and he just gets harder. Right? Or, you don't know my friend Sam. He hates the Lord. He'll never go to church. Or, you don't know Susan. You don't know what Susan's father, who went to church and was a minister, did to her. And when she left that home, she became an atheist and vowed that she would never come back. And my answer to that is, yes, I understand that sin wounds people deeply in the world. But I also understand that God, if He can redeem Egypt and Assyria in His sovereign grace and mercy, then there's hope for the people who have been wounded and hurt the worst in the world. And the hope is found in the sovereign goodness of God. Now there's three things we want to see about this text. Three ideas of grace. First is the objects of grace, those that don't deserve it. Second is the work of grace. It's effectual. It actually changes Egypt. And third is the position of grace. When they're saved, they come on the same standing as Israel. That means God's people, regardless of their history. So here's point one. The objects of grace, if you would, look at verse 16 with me. In that day, the Egyptians will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord of hosts that shakes over him. Let's just stop there. This second half of chapter 19, it uses in that day five times. And he's expanded on what he's already told us in chapter 2. That's this. It shall come to pass in the latter days that all the nations shall flow to the mountain of God. Which means, like we said some weeks ago, that God's kingdom is going to grow throughout the nations in the days of the Messiah coming. So now he is speaking in specifics of his people who are very afraid of Assyria on one side and very afraid of Egypt on the other side. And he's saying, look, God will strike them with judgment. Have no fear. And long term, they will become worshipers of the living God through the work of the Messiah. Now take note of what it says here. Egypt will be like women and tremble with fear before the hand of the Lord. Now we might take offense of that, but 
but that was actually a common language or common saying of the day. And what he is saying is the mighty men of Egypt that you are so fearful of will be gripped with fear themselves about the judgment that's already happened that he told us in the first half. Chapter 19, word the 15, he spells out all the judgment. And they're fearful of what could happen in the future. And notice the key word here is Egypt's fear. Suddenly, their heart is filled with a fear of the Lord, which means they are now in awe of God through the judgment that he's poured out. Now, verse 18, notice the work of grace as it begins. In that day, there will be five cities in the land of Egypt that speak the language of Canaan and swear allegiance to the Lord of hosts. One of these will be called the city of destruction. Egypt was massive. They had heaps of cities, cities everywhere, big cities. And so he seems when he says the work of grace will start in five cities, he's saying it'll start small. Does that make sense? It will start small, but it will not end small. Verse 25, he ends chapter 19 with this. Blessed be Egypt, my people. And so at the end, we see all of Egypt worshiping the Lord. God has blessed them. There has been a revival, an awakening in that nation. Now, it's not just five cities that worship the Lord and speak the language means, means they know God. But the whole nation has turned to the Lord. And you say, how's that happen? Verse 20. Look in your Bibles with me in verse 20. It will be a sign and a witness to the Lord of hosts in the land of Egypt. When they cry to the Lord because of their oppressors, He will send them a Savior and a Defender and a Deliverer. And the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. So when they cry out to the Lord because they are oppressed, because of the judgment, verse 4 tells us what that looks like. And I will give over the Egyptians into the hand of a hard master, and a fierce king will rule over them. God will sovereignly give Egypt over to be ruled by an oppressive leader. And notice the work of that judgment in their lives. They will cry out to the Lord. They will cry out. No longer will they worship their idols. They will cry out and all to God. And look at His grace. He will send them a Savior and Defender and deliver them. And the Lord will make Himself known to the Egyptians and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. Think about what He's saying here. You think about the history of Israel, and Israel was oppressed, weren't they, at one time, by Egypt. Egypt was the oppressor. They are the ones who cried out to the Lord, and the Lord delivered them. And now Isaiah is taking that same story, and he's saying, Egypt will be oppressed, and they will turn to me and cry out, and I will deliver them, not through Moses, but a man much greater than Moses. Through the Messiah that I told you about in chapters 1 to 12. Now, you say, okay, Rusty, I see there's a deliverer, but how do we know this is just not some man that's going to be a war king? 
Well, Isaiah only knows one hero in the entire book. One deliverer throughout the whole book. And that is the Messiah that he told us so much about already. In other words, Egypt will experience reviving grace through the work of the gospel. And that should make us say, Amen. A.W. Pink, the Baptist pastor, says this about grace. Many define grace as unmerited favor. But grace is much more than just unmerited favor. To feed a homeless man who calls on me is unmerited favor. But that's not grace. Suppose that after robbing me and beating me, then I should feed this homeless man. That would be grace. Grace, then, is shown, is favor shown where there is a positive demerit shown by one receiving it. In other words, grace is grace when you're showing it to someone who has not been neutral to you but has wounded you. God brought judgment and oppression upon Egypt so that they would cry out to him for grace. God says, I will stir up the Egyptian against Egyptian. I will confound their counsel. I will give the Egyptians over to hard masters. Not to just punish them, but to convert them. And when their pride is broken and they cry out to me, then I will show them, the enemy of my people, unmerited favor by sending them a Savior, a Messiah. It's verse 22. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing. They will return to the Lord. My friends, God is saying in the history of Egypt, I am the first cause of their trials, but I am also the end. It is to me that they will come. This is how God's sovereign grace still works today. Please listen. He often strikes people with the law. So that he might heal them with grace. So that they will be cut by the law and see the depth of their sin and then run to grace. That's how the Holy Spirit in the gospel works. The law works as the oppressor so often, revealing what we don't see in our own life. And then when we feel condemned because we realize, oh my goodness, my sins are so great, I cannot save us, then God comes to us with Christ, with the Redeemer, and we run to Him by His grace and realize how great grace is because the law has already shown us the depths of our sin. God's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Now let's move to the second thing. Let's move from the objects of grace to the work of grace. And the work of grace is it's effective. Verse 19, look in your Bibles with me. In that day there will be an altar to the Lord in the midst of the land of Egypt and a pillar of the Lord at its borders. Verse 21b. And worship with sacrifice and offering and they will make vows to the Lord and perform them. Now listen, he's taking a series of images from Israel's past to point out one great truth to them. Israel will know and worship, or Egypt will know and worship the living God. We say, where in the past? So when Abraham became a believer, he made altars throughout the land. 
In Genesis 28, when Jacob has his vision of God, he says, surely the Lord is in this place, and he makes a pillar to the Lord and takes a vow. Isaiah is picking up on that exact same language. He's not saying the nation will offer literal sacrifices and be full of literal altars. What he's saying is the nation will be full of worshipers who zealously worship God in the same way that Abraham did, Jacob did before. So the first effect of true saving grace, of being born again, is a new desire to worship, to know God. So what I'm saying is when God comes into our life and we know Him, there is always a change of desire. The same with Egypt. A desire to serve myself and other things turns into a desire to worship the Lord. That's the first mark of real grace. The second is this, Revelation. Look at chapter 21. Revelation. And the Lord will make himself known to the Egyptians. And the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day. My friends, we know God at His own initiative. We know God because He reveals Himself. We don't just discover God one day. God makes Himself known to us in Christ through the work of the Spirit. And knowing God is always a result of grace. And if you know God, you only know Him in one way. And that is as Lord. And that's what we see here in the Egyptians. They cry out to Him as Lord. So the second great mark that we know saving grace is that God has revealed Himself to us. We know Him. We have a relationship with Him personally. And the third is verse 22. This. And the Lord will strike Egypt, striking and healing, and they will return to the Lord. It's discipline. Third mark that you're a believer and that there's saving grace, your faith is genuine, is God will discipline His children. In His love, this is how He protects, directs, and blesses our lives when we are entangled in deep sin and disobedience. He wants what is best for you And that is to be Christ-like. And spiritual discipline is part of that discipleship. Let me say it like this. He is far more committed to your Christ-likeness than your comfort. He is most committed to what is good for you, which is Christ-likeness. And so He will sacrifice your comfort to do what's good for you, to make you Christ-like, which sometimes looks like discipline. A Christian in a concentration camp in Germany said this to an American Christian. He said, I love American Christians. They are awesome. He didn't just say that, but I added that. (laughs) I thought you'd appreciate that. But they try to have Christianity without a cross. They think that if something goes wrong in their lives, or they have to go to the hospital, or they don't make enough money, or they feel unloved, that they must be out of the will of God. In fact, all of those things may be happening 
because they are in the will of God. My friends, we put God in a very hard place. If he disciplines me, we cry out, he must have left me. He's not good because can't you see I'm hurting? I'm hurting and you haven't delivered me. He's not good. He's not there. He does not care. But if he gives you only comfort and a life full of ease, full of Twinkies, we have a question. We say, is he good? And how could he be good and love me and not do what's good for me? We would then see him like the parents of children who are never disciplined. And when you go to Kentucky Fried Chicken or Chick-fil-A and they're screaming and spilling soda everywhere. And you look at their parents. And you say in your mind, discipline that girl. We would see God like that, wouldn't we? How could he be a loving father and withhold discipline from his children? The truth is, when God saved you, He changes you. And now He's lovingly committed to continue to change you. We experience a new desire to worship God, if you're a believer. A new knowledge and relationship with Him. And you also, in His grace, experience the loving correction of a Heavenly Father. Third, and we'll finish here. The position of grace. Verse 24 and 25, if you'll look there in your Bibles with me, and we'll finish with this. In that day there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and Assyria will come into Egypt, and Egypt into Assyria. And the Egyptians will worship with the Assyrians. In that day Israel will be the third with Egypt and Assyria, a blessing in the midst of the earth, whom the Lord of hosts has blessed, saying, please take note of this, Blessed be Egypt, my people, Assyria, the work of my hands, and Israel, my inheritance. I just want you to notice one thing in this verse. He takes three terms. My people, the work of my hands, my inheritance, which were all terms that he had used only for Israel, his covenant people, the believers. And now he describes God's greatest enemies, Egypt and Assyria with those same terms. This is a prophetic promise that the Savior will work in Egypt and Assyria in such a way that the multitude will know Him as He promised in Isaiah 2 and the worship will come from the nations to the Lord. This is also a promise of sovereign grace. It takes all those who believe God takes them And regardless of their past, and only through their faith in Christ, he places them on the same foundation as his people. They are righteous. They are my beloved. They are my particular people when they believe. Now, we often think that God deals with us, with mankind, like a field of corn. Right? That each stalk grows independent and separate on its own roots, and that Uh, Each believer, we grow separate, we're independent, and some believers are more righteous and good and obedient in God's sight than others, and some he loves and cares for more than others. 
because of our past. Well, don't you know what I came from? Don't you know how messed up that was? Yeah, I'm a believer, but don't you know? I'm like the cornstalk that's on the side of the field. But my friends, Christianity is not like a field of corn where we're each independent. It's like an acorn tree where we're each joined to one trunk. And that's Christ. You see, there are two trunks in the world. There's Adam and there's Christ. And my friends, when we are born again, just like Egypt and just like God says He will do in Assyria, we go from being in the trunk of Adam, that means not knowing God, not worshiping God, not under His fatherly care. Spiritual death is our future. And He takes us and He joins us to a new trunk, a new head. We are acorns part of one tree And that is Jesus Christ. Now, suddenly, everything that belongs to the tree belongs to the acorns. It's yours because you're joined to the tree. In other words, everything that is true about Jesus is true about you. You have a full Christ. You have a full Christ. And He is filled for you. Christ's obedience is yours. You have a perfect righteousness to justify you. His holiness to make you clean on your best day and your worst day. His wisdom to guide and direct you every day. And His comfort in the most difficult of times. You have an awesome Savior. And regardless of your past, God sees you on the foundation of Christ. And that's His grace. Father, I just praise you right now and I thank you. I look at Egypt and I see 10% Christian right now. And I read about the world past and I understand there were some movements of the Spirit. But God, I thank you for these words that the gospel will go to the hardest of ground, to Muslim nations. And they will see Jesus not just as a prophet, They will see him as the Isaiah Messiah, as the very Son of God, the one born of a virgin, the one that came to save. And many will be saved. Lord, give us a living hope that by faith in Christ, those of us who come from rough backgrounds, we are not second-class citizens in your kingdom. We are seen as righteous as the woman or the man who's been walking with you for 70 years. We stand in the same position because we're joined to Jesus. And God, give us a living hope for those we know that are far from you. Those we know who have a very hard, dead heart who love the things of the world and hate the things of you. Lord, thank you for your grace, your sovereign grace. Lord, which can save the hardest ground. In Jesus' name, amen.